All right, um, <clears throat> Lisa Ferguson is our first speaker talking about the impact of porn on the brain and society. Uh, Lisa is a licensed addictions counselor and an EMDR trained therapist who specializes in helping individuals, couples, and families recover from the devastation of substance or alcohol addictions, pornography, and sexual addictions, and PTSD. She's also an internationally certified um, specialist in sexual addictions therapy with the Patrick Carnes Gentle Path Program and is the state of Indiana's first certified clinical partner specialist through the Association of Partners of Sex Addicts Trauma Specialists. Uh, she has an office here in the building for many years and um, if you're looking for someone to give you some professional counseling, I want to recommend Lisa to you and encourage you to talk to her before the day's up. But um, she's going to begin our conference today, so Lisa, come forward, please. So I'll see if my tech is working. Can you hear me? Yes. Good. Um, let's see. I usually just like to walk around, so I think I'm just going to do that. I'll get my little other techie piece ready and... Good to go, okay. Okay. Voila. You can see I'm not a digital native. Well, good morning, everyone. <laughs> Thanks for coming out for this really nerdy conference. You know, it's, it's, uh, Bob, how much time do I have? Remind me of that. Good. <laughs> Bob and I work real well together on timing and stuff, so I'll ask my timer over here if you uh, want to give me the five minute, because I get all wrapped up. So, stranglehold, that's a pretty serious, so this may be the last time you see me smile for a little bit because <laughs> all the stuff I have to say is like, oh, okay, this is happening. Um, but I will say ahead of time that the Debbie Downer is here so that the rest of me can rejoice with you at the end because we have all kinds of hope, <laughs> all kinds of hope that people don't know about. So that's really what this conference is about. If there are any children in here, uh, we may want to consider because we do have very frank language uh, coming up, I'll be using clinically proper terms for what we're talking about, and uh, I don't see any though. Very good. So um, here's the intro. I'm going to talk a little bit about trauma in general uh, first, because most of us don't know what our brains are doing, <laughs> because we're fearfully and wonderfully made, as it says in the scripture, and uh, so if things um, don't go perfectly, which it never does, uh, when we're little, because parents do the best they can. You know, none of us as parents, we do, don't do a perfect job. Um, no parent can truly know all the needs of those children. When you have them, first of all, they can't talk yet, and secondly, they don't know their needs, and so forth. So, uh, so, so we all have some form um, of stuff, and I call it trauma just because that's a, a clinic. Hi. <laughs> a clinical term that is um, proper for it. Um, so it sounds exaggerated to most of us, like, oh no, you know, I didn't have trauma, I wasn't in a war, and that kind of thing. But I'll be using that clinical term just to refer to um, something as simple as, as unmet needs. Um, so, anyhow, um, our country is full of traumatized people, okay? Um, and our task um, from one day to the next is to figure out how to create a safe space. Um, for now, um, while we're working those things out. So, so what does porn have to do with it? <laughs> okay, more later, but I'll start the, uh, the definition of trauma. Our dictionaries tell us that it's an um, injury to living tissue, okay, caused by an extrinsic, extrinsic agent. Um, it, it's also a disordered psychic state. 
caused by emotional stress or injury. Okay, so that's a just a working definition. Um, a lot of us have little t traumas. Many of us have big t traumas also. Um, and you know, we just we just move on, and and that's what you do. And most of us um, make good and have lives and you know, love people and are loved and so forth and so on, in spite of it. The little t ones are the prolonged states of unmet needs, even in great households. And I, and I mean that <laughs> even in great households, great households, children have unmet needs. Um, the big T's, of course, are easy to note. Those are the catastrophic events. Accidents, tragedies, war, muggings, you know, death of loved ones, and so forth and so on. Two hemispheres in our heads. <laughs> That's how we're born. That's how we're wired. The right brain is the feeling brain, and the left brain is the thinking brain. Um, right brain also houses a lot of other really cool stuff, intuition, spirituality, interpersonal skills, so forth and so on, art, music, etc. That left brain, of course, is our, you know, strong suit in our, in our society, I think. Most of us really feel the need to develop that left brain in order to have um, a life that gets put together. The amygdala is in the right brain. Little bitty thing, great big job. It is the center of influence. That is the place. I call it the shofar of the brain. How many people know what a shofar is? It's old school. <laughs> it's a, um, back in the uh, historic times, um, that is what the Hebrew tribes called the, um, the trumpet calling for troops. So if you heard the shofar, you knew that you were needed and the troops showed up. Back in the days before telephones. Um, so the amygdala of the brain, what it does, um, it, is, it is faster than the visual cortex. So if it senses, and this is where it gets real weird and primitive, it could be illogical to the left brain. But when it senses that something is threatening or unsafe, it blows a shofar. This is faster than it, let's see, like for you to look at this and know that it's a remote or look at a clock and know it's a clock. So you're, you're, it's, that's so fast you're not even noticing doing that, right? I mean, we just clock, remote. Visual cortex, I'm sorry, the amygdala is faster than the visual cortex. So, so in other words, if I said to everyone here, there's going to be a pretend gunshot in 10 seconds right outside the door here. It'll be loud and sudden. We'll count it down. If I said that to you, we'd all be expecting it. And we could count down together. Three, two, one, bang. Many of us would jump first and giggle later. That's because that response of jumping is the amygdala. And after that, the troops come <laughs> so fast. And after that, we're adrenalized. Make sense? So we call it primitive, but boy, is it active. When we have a state of prolonged small t trauma or a state of big T trauma, that amygdala gives a sustained call. The brain then, notice on the left, that's how it ought to look. You got your frontal cortex, it's just like functioning, it's nice and contained, it's doing its job. Everybody else is doing their job in here, we're going along fine. What happens if this gets disrupted in any large way, which might be over time or it might be sudden danger? That's what it looks like. Now, people who don't get out of that danger or who don't feel that they're out of it, 
their brain looks like that all the time. <laughs> now notice what that may be doing to organized thought, <laughs> to all those other things that we like to do with our brains. It scuttles it, makes it harder. So the big T traumas, we have one in three women and one in four men who have suffered from physical abuse. One in three, so in a room like this, we have several people. One in four girls suffer sexual assault before the age of 18. So if we had a room full of um, you know, college students or whatever, we'd have a preponderance. Um, so if you gather all the females in this room, you got 10, couple of them will have experienced that. Isn't that, isn't that just, it's just sobering. It's just sobering and what we do is we, we go on. We don't talk about it that much. You know, it's not a big thing we wear on our hats or anything. One in six boys suffer sexual assault before the age of 18 as well. Now that, usually they'll take that to their graves. I don't know how they got these stats, um, but the people that do these are, are brilliant. Many people who abuse were themselves abused um, because these things are learned early and the patterns are difficult to break. Not impossible, but difficult. So when we're triggered by something in the present that feels, right brain, feels like something in the past, we got the troops. And that shuts down what it considers unnecessary functions. The brain considers unnecessary for immediate survival. Immune system, <laughs> logic, <laughs> so forth and so on. Uh, decision making, that's out because it's too slow. Uh, so in crisis, something else takes over and actually shuts down unnecessary stuff. You can imagine what happens to people with a prolonged state of this. Autoimmune disorders are among them because <laughs> the immune system is suppressed for a long period of time. Isn't that interesting? Side note, immune system's a very amazing part of us and it can be affected, it's delicate, it can be affected so many ways. One of them, there's, there's been sleep studies done. It's a little bit of a bunny trail, but it just kind of gives you a clue as to how impactful this stuff can be into the brain. One of those studies has shown that we actually, if we're getting eight, eight hours sleep, which most people aren't, but we're supposed to, and that's what we're wired to have, you know. And that's true. We are wired to have seven, eight hours of sleep every night to do what we're supposed to do, to repair and all that stuff. So people go along in this study, they're having eight hours sleep per night. One night, they get six hours. Then they do all the immune system measurements and the immune function goes down by like 40% overnight. That's how I got this cold. <laughs> and I know it, <laughs> so I'm resting tonight. But, um, so, so our bodies really are a, a big deal. Um, and God evidently chose to house us in physical bodies that require attention. His choice, not mine. <laughs> Short-term memory is another one that takes, takes a dive. Okay, so uh, this PTSD-like brain response can be a result of small T traumas as well as catastrophic events. Now, what is, what's porn got to do with it? <laughs> okay. The first viewing of digital pornography often initiates this. Just so you know. Isn't that interesting? We can't tell, I mean, right brain, it's right brain, it's primitive, we can't talk to it. Hey, this isn't traumatic, I'm just watching something. Have you ever noticed when you're watching a, like a, I don't know, an adventure or some movie, the cowboy, you know, movie and the hero's getting trounced. Have you ever taken your heart rate when that's happening? Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Brain doesn't know the difference. So trauma can leave a mark on the, on the right brain, causing the neural pathway 
of fight, flight, freeze. So, so that happens when the present reminds us of the past in a bad way. Long term, it eventually establishes a pattern of dysfunctional life choices. So we want to carry around a lot of shame for bad choices, which is okay because our spirituality can override some of that. But it's not okay to keep carrying it because this is physiological. Isn't that astonishing? It's just brain science. Because the amygdala continues to talk and go, oh, stay away from that. Such as, oh, you found the right person. Don't get too close because they might leave. Oh, you've got a profession in your soul and it takes a lot of risk. Uh -uh, don't apply for that. You might fail. Or worse yet, this sucks. Let's medicate. I can't sleep. I need something. I can't stop shaking. <laughs> I need something. And, and, and addictive patterns with some things get started real fast. First use, sometimes. I don't want to give my, I don't want to steal my own thunder. I'm getting ahead of myself. So then, of course, we have decision-making, empathy, motivation, clear articulation, short-term memory, all those things get scuttled even more. Long-term, this keeps the brain from developing. If you start young, you're supposed to be developing a frontal cortex before all these functions. Those cells don't even get put into place until guys are 26 and girls are about 23. So they're, if you're under 26, you're probably work, your body's working on develop, developing the frontal cortex tissue. If you have an addiction going on, it stopped when you started the addiction. So then it has to re-engage after you're sober for a long time. Takes about a year of sobriety to get your frontal cortex caught up. So that's why we have, you know, like 50, 60 year old people behaving like 12 year olds. And there's no shame in that statement. It's just a clinical, clinical fact. It's, it's tissue damage. Trauma can be healed. Yay. Okay. So now I'm going to smile. Trauma can be healed. <laughs> I love that trauma can be healed. I love that. Just remember that. EMDR is one of those things I wanted to make you aware of today. EMDR is a right brain therapy for a change. CBT, cognitive behavioral, is, I use a preponderance of that in my practice. A lot of good therapists use that. It works. But EMDR works faster. <laughs> so I do a combo in my practice because I hate seeing people linger in misery. I really do. So I've been running around getting all kinds of certifications to help the pace of recovery. So Francine Shapiro, who passed away a couple of months ago, bless her heart, she discovered EMDR in 1987, was walking through, had had a catastrophic event and was walking through a forest to just try and process it and think about it and be desperate and everything. And when she finished that walk, she, um, noticed that she no longer felt traumatized by it. Like she no longer had all those overwhelming, it, she seemed a lot calmer and she had it in perspective. She's like, what the heck? And then she noticed that her eyes, <laughs> I know this sounds ridiculous, but her eyes had been tracking back and forth like this as she walked. She wondered if that had anything to do with it. She was a, she was a nerd, she was a doctoral student in psych, you know? She was doing her thesis, so she decided to look at that and explore it and did her thesis over it, and it changed the world. That's how it was discovered. And she says that every experience is logged in our inner world, and it governs our reactions to everything and every person we ever encounter thereafter. I believe she's right. 
So EMDR therapy helps people experience more quickly the benefits of psychotherapy, the healing of trauma. And I just wanted to add this for just a little emphasis. We usually, um, so EMDR therapy shows that the mind can in fact heal from psychological trauma much as the body recovers from physical trauma. So when you cut your hand, uh, your body works to close the wound. If a foreign object or repeated injury irritates it, it festers and causes pain. And once that block is removed, healing resumes. The brain works like that. It's part of our physical body. Fearfully and wonderfully made, as we say. So the brain on trauma looks like the left <laughs> brain on EMDR. This is a, um, this is a, um, I believe it's a SPECT scan of a woman with PTSD and um, she comes in for four 90-minute EMDR sessions. <laughs> Look at that. This is not our imagination. Isn't that wonderful? So what does it look like before we get help? That. <laughs> Sometimes that. Okay. Dysfunctional relationships, high anxiety, rage, and anger issues. Okay. Broken hearts and addictions. Some addictions are big old things that are obvious, and others are subtle that are not obvious. And part of it's because it's accepted in our society. Alcohol's a hard one. Pornography is a hard one because it has a great deal of social acceptability. But it's a disease. We have substance and then we have process. Substance, of course, you know what that is. Process is the eating disorders, the sexual addictions, things that have actions instead of chemicals that we take. So the disease paradigm looks like this. It is a disease, like we, we now know that. <laughs> so that's why I can talk about it without any shame. And my clients come in and they feel very ashamed and eventually, hopefully, I talk them out of that cause. It's a disease. We, we don't shame people who come in to their doctor's office with heart disease. This is a brain disease. Eats brain tissue. Got to treat it a certain way to get the brain tissue back. But you can. You can. So there is a genetic connection. One in five babies, they say. I think it's more like one in four. They have yet to redo that study. Um, are born with a genetic predisposition for addiction. Doesn't mean they have to be an addict. There's things that run in families that people never get because they take a lifestyle seriously and they make sure they don't go there. Or at least they try. And some people don't succeed. <laughs> so it's not, it's not a given. Um, but you can test babies' brains. Nobody's going to want to because it's expensive, but you can test them as soon as they're born and find that little anomaly in there. And people who have studied it know what they're looking at. <laughs> That's not very encouraging. I actually think that our genetics in the country has changed enough. Um, in the last decade, we learned that genetics uh, does change. We can't, our, our genetics, whoops, sorry. Wow, that's weird. Our genetics can change, um, and it doesn't take too awfully long. The genetic code, I'm saying, genetic code can change, and it doesn't take too awfully long. There's a lot of research out there right now about it, enough that we know that it's true. So when this study was done, it was one in five. My thought about it being one in four, one in three, maybe even one in two now, is based on that new information. So we can develop a genetics that is addiction-free. We can, and now they know that, they can see it now. Chromosome 40 is where this is located. And we can also, with continued use, develop a flawed genetic in that area. So there you go. Um, characteristics of the disease, it is a form of OCD. That may be surprising to some. It may be relieving to some. <laughs> Those of us, oh, that's my OCD. You know, we all kind of, it's so common that we all just kind of joke about it. We all have a little something going on. And it's not necessarily disease process. 
but it's an advanced form of OCD, so it's obsessive in the mind, right? And it's compulsive in the actions. It is unpredictable to the person who has it. People that live with them learn to predict. Continued use despite negative consequences, that's always present. Even if the negative consequence is, I feel shameful when I do this, but I keep doing it. Acting against a person's moral code, that would be an example of continued use despite negative consequences. It's progressive, that's, that's what makes me an urgent kind of girl. <laughs> like, we don't have time to hang out because it just marches through its four stages. It's a four-stage fatal disease, just like cancer. So a person in late stage, which is usually what I see because people wait until they have gotten so unmanageable in their life that they are a lot of times next to suicide and they come to see me as a last resort because our country tells us we ought to be able to stop. <laughs> Ah, uh, that's such an ignorant, it's an ignorant mindset. Oh, I ought to be able to handle this. Well, do we say that with heart disease? Oh, come on heart, just don't do that. Just, I'll just try real hard and not have a, you know, a problem with my heart. We don't, we don't, we don't make stuff up about other diseases, <laughs> okay? We're making stuff up about addiction. So people, people stay away from counselors because they're ashamed to go because everybody else seems to be handling it. Notice I said seems to be. Don't ever judge your insides by somebody's outsides. So it is deadly if untreated. So people who come in in a fourth stage, a late stage, we get aggressive, we work quick, and um, they develop solid recoveries, um, and it happens most of the time. <laughs> almost all the time in my office. It's wonderful. And then people get their life. Uh, some people get lives they've never had <laughs> in a good way. Other people get their life back if it's treated properly. It's in the primal part of the brain. It's in the pleasure center. Uh, right brain has a lot to do with that. Sorry. <laughs> it's just kind of, that's where it is. And it produces brain damage. Um, I don't know if I have slides on that, but it produces brain damage in the frontal cortex over time and actually eats that tissue. So the fight, flight, freeze response that you were seeing, it's a very similar response to using, okay? So binging on porn or, um, you know, taking a hit of, you know, cocaine, so forth and so on. Will send off enough supercharging in that pleasure center that the tissue that's close, <laughs> such as frontal cortex, eventually just starts deteriorating. And so if you take a spec scan of somebody who's, who's using, I'll show you those in a little bit. You can see it. A lot of times it's misdiagnosed, unfortunately, because, well, you see the symptoms and it looks like other stuff. It looks like bipolar, it looks like delirium, dementia, amnesia, psychotic, anxiety sleep disorder, and sometimes that is just a, well, I mean, that's what addiction looks like. It's also what withdrawal looks like for some people. So doctors who aren't skilled in assessing addictions will often put people on meds for bipolar, for example. But if there's an underlying addiction, it won't, it won't take as well. So those are the symptoms. Most people who are in an addiction are depressed and anxious, can't sleep, can't concentrate, etc. This is the, the insidious part here. <laughs> the way this works is the first use um, produces a bit of a high, um, and in the case of uh, some people, um, um, I will say also that my son is 10 years clean and sober from heroin addiction, from which he almost died. We rejoice today. He got married three weeks ago. A lot of dancing at that wedding. He's working a very consistent program 10 years. Goes to meetings, has a sponsor, the whole nine yards. And gets EMDR therapy and all. 
Um, first use, in his case, I will just use that, made him able to reflect how smart he is when he took a test for the first time, because he had test anxiety. He's a brilliant young man, but he would flunk these tests. <laughs> and so he used for the first time and went, where has this been all my life? Aced the test, was in college, two jobs, full-time college student, comes from a high-achieving family. I, I kind of apologize about all of that, but, um, but any, <laughs> you know, we really can't as parents. What we don't know is what we don't know. But um, so he was finally then able to just take a test like normal people. His best friends were acing it, but his anxiety got in the way. So that's how he got started. <laughs> Unfortunately, that is a very addictive drug. And now he's living to tell about it. So first use produces a revelation of some sort. And then it goes like this. And as you can see, the trajectory gets, um, you gotta use more, you gotta use different, you gotta use more risky to get that same uh, result. Or you gotta use more than one thing. It's the same with pornography addiction, by the way. So there are three things that are known uh, to have a great risk of producing an addictive cycle on the first use. Any guesses? And it doesn't count if you've seen this before. <laughs> Just call it out. Three, two, one. Okay, meth is one. First use can be your end, like the beginning of addiction. So people can become um, addicted on first use. You got it. You've seen this. <laughs> Good. Cocaine's the next one. And there you go. Internet porn. First use. And, and the younger the first use, the more likely it is to cause uh, a per, you know, permanent, semi-permanent addiction. So you can go into addiction. And, and most people who have addictions will say, well, I'm not an addict because I don't have to use it every day. Have, there's a whole line. I should write a little booklet or something on the things that people have in their uh, repertoire that is reasons that they're not an addict. And it's just based on ignorance and nobody's at, at fault for not knowing because our country won't talk about it. <laughs> most churches won't talk about it. This church is very exceptional. Hello. So they'll say, oh, I don't have to do it every day, uh, so I'm good. Oh, hey, I've gone three weeks and I didn't even have a single craving, so I'm good. Oh, hey, you know, there's all kinds of things that people say. The truth is that if you really look over time, over a period of time, say years for some people, If it's against your moral code, if you feel ashamed when you do it, and you stop doing it because you want to stop doing it, and then you eventually pick it back up, there's a good chance you got an addiction going. Okay. What is it? It's a dysfunctional preoccupation with sexual urges, fantasy, and behavior often involving obsessive pursuit of non-intimate sex, porn, compulsive masturbation, romantic obsession. Note I said romantic obsession. That's, that's one of the gamut that we call sexual addiction. Is a, we call it relationship addiction. And objectified partner sex. The pattern persists for six months or more, despite attempts made to self-correct, promises made to self and others, and significant negative consequences, which can be inner, or it can be a combination of inner consequences and exterior ones. So it's an ongoing out of control pattern of compulsive sexual fantasy and behavior that's causing problems. Okay. 20 kinds there are, isn't that interesting? Pornography is one of them. It is the most prevalent, um, but, uh, but there are 20 kinds of sex addiction. And usually a person who's addicted to porn will move on into some of the other ones in about a third stage or fourth stage. So they'll begin to pick up some of the other kinds of sexual addiction, 
along with porno pornography addiction due to that other chart that I showed you that it, progressively it just it takes more. Or they'll add a substance, perhaps, to the uh, pornography and masturbation. It's a national health crisis now. And it may be another 10 years before people start talking about it. I, you know, I'm just sitting here going, how long does this take? <laughs> so where are we? Porn's a primary source of info for kids. Can you imagine? Because parents, you know, we, we feel funny about talking about sexuality. We surely don't want to be talking about it to our little ones, right? So we don't beat the industry to the punch. So they first hear from the porn industry about sex. That's who's teaching our children about sex because it finds them before we do. Eighty-eight percent of the scenes in, in the normal porn that you see contain a physical aggression and sexual violence. Nine out of ten boys are exposed to it before 18, and again, I think that stat is like way low. I, I mean, I think it's more like 14. Um, and the average age, now this has been a statistic for several years. Um, the average age of first viewing is, is seven. Now, is that because kids are curious? Not at seven. <laughs> at seven, they're not, they're not thinking about that stuff, unless they're around people who are. But um, it finds them. It'll find them through a sibling's um, computer or phone, a parent's phone or iPad, or um, they'll go over to a neighbor to play, and you know somebody's left something accidentally. So when you press the power button, it comes up with it. Stuff like that. I once had a a person um, in my office who was grieving. It was a dad who was grieving that when his daughter was two, they went on a family vacation. And he had gotten careless. That's another thing that happens in late stage addiction. He'd gotten careless with his internet porn and had forgotten to close out. And two, two year old got a hold of the iPad and uh, up, up it came what he was looking at. And she brought it out to the family and said, What is this? <laughs> now, he was grieving because of the damage it did to her. And um, that did not end well, I will tell you that. So porn receives more regular traffic than <laughs> all that other stuff put together. Half of internet downloads are porn. Recorded child sexual exploitation known as child porn. It's, it's just all it is is recorded child exploitation. That's what that is. Um, is one of the fastest growing online businesses. Preponderance of young people between 13 and 24, so 64%. That may be a little low. Um, actively seek porn out weekly or more often, but only 12% of their parents think they're doing it, which is very interesting. Oh, my kid would not do that. Been there. It's hard to, yeah, especially in, a, in you know, homes where truth is valued and everything, you know. No, part of the disease is that people lie. And some of them lie really well. Um, but it is part of the disease, so. Instagram got linked to Pornhub Hub a couple, three years ago. One of the users of Instagram happened to be <laughs> sent. <laughs> so she, uh, she would um, uh, put little uh, things on there and you'd click on it and you'd be at Pornhub. And they probably got that taken care of, um, but if it happened once, it it's there. Um, there is no natural satiation response with internet addiction. Isn't that interesting? You can eat so much that you can't eat anymore. You're full. You don't feel like eating, even if you're binging. Doesn't happen with internet. There's no limit, especially internet pornography. Yeah, no natural satiation response. United States is the top producer of 
pornographic DVDs and web pages. Second largest is Germany. It's something like 98% is made here. <laughs> uh, gosh, I don't know how we got there. 88% uh, of the top-rated porn scenes show real aggressive acts. And 70% of those are man on woman. Brain changes, indeed. So this is a normal MRI. How many people have seen something like this? So it's just normal brain scan. Okay. Strokes look like that. Alzheimer's looks like that. So those are parts of the brain that are um, not functioning. Now this is parts of the brain that are not there. <laughs> okay, so, so non-functioning versus absent. Absent. It's different, different little patterns. And there's weed. I used to show this slide when I was um, speaking to young people in schools, and it would always, <laughs> there'd always be a gasp in the room, you know, because, oh, marijuana is not bad for us. Well, that's what the brain looks like when, so what, what can I say? You know, we got the MRIs to show us. And the one on the far right is the, the porn pattern. It's very similar to the heroin one next to it. So brain damage. Brain damage. That's the, uh, the frontal cortex, the uh, decision-making, empathy for others, awareness of self, motivation, uh, short-term memory, etc. So there we go. So we have limited access to ourselves and limited access to others when we're like that. We may have a great shell on the outside. We've learned to compensate with left, left brain and, and what, what, what's left of left brain and what's left of right brain, which is really decimated. But, um, so we can look like a person, but we really can't have a relationship that works anyway. So describing porn's effect to a U.S. Senate committee. It is as though we have devised a form of heroin usable in the privacy of one's own home and injected directly into the brain through the eyes and that comes to your door with no charge. <laughs> I might, might add that. So of course we have an epidemic, an epidemic, national crisis, porn addiction. So this is this a tsunami and uh, so 68 of American guys are viewing regularly, Christian men about the same. So that, that tells us something. And I don't think what it tells us is that Christians don't mean it. I think it tells us <laughs> that Christian men get heart disease and so do non-Christian men get heart disease and so porn is like that, porn addiction is like that. I think that's what it tells us. Disease doesn't ask the person, are you Christian? Now a, 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 a caveat might be I have seen men who are strong Christians who have not progressed as quickly through those stages. And then I've seen some um, who have progressed very, very quickly. So those with strong faith um, sometimes get, get a little retardation of the process and sometimes they don't. So I don't know what, I don't know, um, I don't wanna say that it's yeah, I don't know what it is, um, but, but no, the stats are the same in, in the church. So, um, and now we go to 18 through 30s, almost 80% are viewing it regularly, regularly, okay? Um, now, not all those people are feeling good about it, <laughs> okay? A lot of them are not. 67%, 31 through 49 view regularly. So, it, um, so these, these are just, just stats, just to kind of, and, and now we're also starting to get some stats about women. Um, we have a, uh, graduated from one in five to one in three women have a porn addiction. It's a disease, folks. It's, our stereotypes don't work with disease. Um, Porn-induced erectile dysfunction. 
Has anybody heard of that? Okay. Uh, it uh, came about a, five years ago in doctor's offices. People started coming in in their 20s, guys. And um, I have erectile dysfunction. Can you help me? And the doctors don't know to ask, you know, so what's your relationship with porn? How often are you using? And so forth and so on. So, so they just, you know, offer them a medication. And um, so back probably, probably maybe six years ago, they, uh, a couple of 20-something guys just didn't want to take that for the answer, so they went home and got on the internet, like people do, to ask the question, has anybody else got this problem? <laughs> That's what you know, people do when they're young like that and they're in the digital native area. And they got hundreds of responses. Yep, we've got that problem. So they started researching it. The, the lay people started researching the young lay people. And they uh, went to Patrick Carnes's material, of course, because he's the cutting edge, right? He's the guy that educated me. And um, he's, he's made all the research that we know. He's founded the whole practice of sexual addictions therapy. And they found in his works, ah, <laughs> oh, this guy says it, you know, it takes him 90 days to reboot the brain. <laughs> and so they, they call it a reboot now, 90-day reboot. It used to be called 90-day abstinence. Abstinence from sex with self or others for 90 days. We'll begin the neural pathway redirection. Notice I said, begin, and I, I use the word neural pathway. Then you have to have sobriety, not necessarily celibacy, after that for another nine months or so, if you want the brain tissue to rebuild. So that's different than the neural pathways. Neural pathways are how the brain tissue is activated. Those can reboot in 90 days. Rest of the brain, if you want to build, building takes a longer time. So now there are websites about this. One of them is called nofab.com. Okay. Um, yeah, there's, they don't look like this. They look like um, giant Barbie dolls. Um, these, um, these have been out now for about three years. Started out three years ago with um, one company some guy out in California, that's how he spent his time. And they sold so quickly that um, now there are about half a dozen companies. Um, within that first year, there were about half a dozen companies. There may be some more by now. I haven't seen this year's stats on that. They're all female. <laughs> What's that tell us? My God, my God, really? Life-size Barbies that talk and all of that stuff. Where have we gone? So we got, as I said before, the stats are um, similar in the church. We, pastors have, uh, you know, they're not uh, exempt. I mean, uh, it's out there. 50% um, of all Christian men, 20% of all Christian women say they are addicted. And that's, that's, that's big. An estimated 68 percent of men in the church watch on a regular basis. Okay, so the kids. The kids. Average 12-year-old boy or 10 or 8. Okay. Google's 15 seconds, they've got extreme sexual violence by a man against a woman. That's the typical way this happens. Mainstream porn, what our kids get within the first 15 seconds. It used to be called hardcore porn. There is no such thing as soft porn anymore. And that's been for um, a long time, probably 15, maybe, maybe yeah, 15 years. It, I mean, it, it kicked up fast in the mid-90s because of the competition between the companies. And so then it, everybody got a little more edgy, a little more, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's kicked up very quickly. So the younger they get to porn, the more likely they begin um, in depressions, anxiety, in, uh, dangerous sexual behavior, and relational disorders. Uh, it's not because they're imitating it. Some of, some of it is, the sexual dysfunction, they're imitating what they've seen. But it's because of the changes in the brain. I mean, try and have loving relationships when you don't have a frontal cortex. No empathy, no, 
it's all, it's all right here. It's all very self-centered. And kids will be self-centered anyway for a long period of time because they don't have a left brain, they don't have frontal cortex. But if they start using something like this young, they won't develop one either until they stop. And I love that until they stop. <laughs> it takes 90 days to reboot, you know, and then you got your year of sobriety. And the brain blossoms again like a fire that runs through a forest, and then you got green coming up later. So ch children, when they first see that, children, when they first see that, have a trauma response in their brain. They don't have a say over that. Nobody does. It's right brain. It's primitive. Remember? I, you know, we all jump and giggle later. It's that. So they have a trauma response faster than a speeding bullet, so to speak. And when some of them have that, the response then is to replay it. We just call it trauma repetition. And then that starts and becomes an obsession. And then it becomes a compulsion. And so you're getting earlier and earlier addictions. The porn industry knows this. They're digital, brilliant digital marketers some of them are using their genius to get that to happen in our country. Graduate, you know, with degrees and could do wonderful things with their digital marketing and so forth. And they choose to do that. It has changed our biological markers in just a short sort of decade we've gone uh, from this kind of thing being unknown, leading cause of Throat cancer used to be alcoholism, and the onset was after 50, and now it's HPV from oral sex, onset 13 to 15. So, so, so now we vaccinate, and that's been the last few years we started vaccinating because of this. We didn't even know about this like five, six years ago. I got that from a Patrick Carnes lecture. But it, it just burned like a wildfire through our society, changed the biological markers. <sighs> Pretty much if you take all the stats for all addictions, substance and, um, and uh, things like pornography addiction, sex addiction, and so forth and so on, put them all together, and then you put those together with the statistics that say for every addict there are approximately seven people who are in a love relationship with them who are affected by them. Our whole country. We could, we could go out here and just pick people out of their homes, bring them in, fill the room, <laughs> and everybody's going to be relating to this. And, and I, I laugh, it's, I laugh because it's so sad. <laughs> How did we get here, and why are we still doing this and not wanting to learn about this? Societal implications? Well, people who have addictions are like this. They can't control it or quit. They continue to use despite negative consequences. Preoccupation and obsession, compulsive. Tolerance goes up over time, and they have withdrawal symptoms. They might. So the national crisis then becomes these people as they're living, and bless them all, they don't, they don't know what to do. They are lacking empathy, impulsive, poor decision makers, forgetful, lacking motivation, out of touch with self and others, non-relational, uh, emotionally absent, and self-absorbed. So, these are the people who are running a lot of our country and being the parents of children and the grandparents of grandchildren. So when does a person need a therapist? 
if you keep using despite negative consequences, if you have a mental preoccupation that comes and goes or just stays, if you notice that you're increasing a little bit over time, wow, I used to be off of here in two hours and I just looked and there's five hours. Um, so you want to get into a qualified person's office and there aren't very many of us, it's the weirdest thing. Ten years ago when I certified as a CSAT, I thought, well, I'll get in right now and I'll have a, a big load, but it's okay because we don't have very many in Indiana. We had maybe half a dozen in Indiana. We still have about half a dozen in Indiana. Why isn't this just skyrocketing? Why isn't there a CSAT on every, you know, city map? I don't know. But you need a CSAT or a person who has, there's, there's like one other credential that I would um, say is pretty credible and it's new, so I'm not even sure what it is. It's by a different organization that was also started by Patrick Carnes. But a regular therapist, and I've been one, I've been a regular therapist before, we don't have those tools. So you don't want to waste time. It's, it's not that uh, therapists can't do a good job with trauma, but if there's, a, if there's a, an addiction that is active, all the trauma work in the world is not going to stick. Because it'll supersede. The brain will not change. See what I'm saying? So you have, to, you have to know what you're doing with addictions in order to help people with addictions. There you go. Trauma. Relational damage. Legacy of acute dysfunction. Partners and spouses. What is partner trauma? That's another certification of mine. Psychological traumas don't usually involve blood. <laughs> okay. Their wounds, um, however, can damage and cripple us. That damage can be more severe. Hear me now. <laughs> the damage to a person who is a partner of a sex addict, just the sex addict alone. I'm not even talking about the substance. God, you know, God help all of the families. Is less likely to heal because those wounds remain invisible. Partners are not crazy. Partners are having a logical, very logical trauma response to the stressor of addiction in their closest relationship, even if they don't know that the person is addicted. Because the characteristics of those person destroy relationship. And it is traumatic, and we've got brain science to show for it now. So think about it. They're living with people who are self-absorbed, impulsive, poor decision makers, forgetful, lacking motivation, out of touch with self and others, non-relational, unable to bond, emotionally absent and sometimes abusive, that's the life of a partner. That, that'll make you look crazy, I'll tell you that. Re-experiencing, we're looking at the um, DSM-5 uh, criteria for uh, PTSD. <laughs> Re-experiencing, avoidance, distressing memories, thoughts, feelings, try not to think about it. Right? Negative cognitions and mood. Blaming. Becoming overly sensitive, quote unquote, to a seemingly innocent thing that someone says to them, the, that their husband or, or wife you know, says to them. Forgetful, confused, and aggressive. Hypervigilance fight, flight, sleep disturbance, all that stuff. Partners look like that. And that is the DSM-5 definition of PTSD. Show me a partner of a sex addict. I will show you someone who has some degree of that going on. They need treatment. First of all, they need to be told they're not crazy because usually God love them. The addict that they're living with tells them they're crazy. 
to hide what's happening. They'll say really cruel things like, well, I'm not going to be perfect. You just want perfection. You're always suspicious. What do you th where do you think I've been? Stuff like that. We call that gaslighting. They suspect. They're made to feel crazy. And then they discover that they were right all along. This is what partners say. These are quotes from partners in my supervisor's practice. She wrote a book with this stuff in it. Listen to how they characterize it. Listen to what these people are saying. So how does it feel to be in that relationship and to figure out that your husband or whatever left me shell-shocked, threw up, couldn't sleep, horror, rage, fury at God. Notice the, notice the um, degree of these adjectives. I loved this person, I wanted his comfort, but he was the source of my pain. Disturbing dreams, couldn't read, nothing made sense. Hello, PTSD. I shook uncontrollably. What is that? PTSD, the shofar, all that. It's an overcharging of the, uh, the adrenaline. It felt like a death. It, it was a death. Betrayal. Finding out that your person has had a secret life, it is maddening. It's, it's like everybody's worst nightmare. It's like hanging upside down trying to write myself. I mean, some, look at these. Pool of my own blood. Dear God. And, and this is, this, you know, this wasn't her encouraging them to get emotional. She just asked them, what's it like to have discovered this? And this is what she got. So she wrote it in a book. Partners are often emotionally unstable, confused, sleep-deprived, anxious, distressed, and volatile. They're underserved. They're mistreated. And they're mistreated in a lot of places, okay, including the church. Not this church, but I mean the church in general. Oh, you have unreasonable expectations. You're overreacting. Oh, you're codependent. Well, there was a reason you chose him. Start working on yourself. Oh, just let it go. You gotta be more forgiving. Maybe your husband needs more sex. They're told all those things before they come to me. I've heard it all. Now, you just heard me talk for over 40 minutes about how there is no shame in having a sexual addiction. And I stand by that. But there is also no ignoring of the damage that that does to the closest people around them. I can smile again. Addictions, we have all kinds of neat stuff now. We have SA, SAA, those are, um, let's see, Sexaholics Anonymous and Sex Addicts Anonymous. Those are 12 step groups started by um, Patrick Carnes. There's therapy, thank God. There's trauma therapy, thank God. There's inpatient if needed, thank God. <laughs> uh, Pure Desire Group, Eric will tell you about that later. Every Man's Battle is a nice uh, generalized support group, but, but the Pure Desire group is, is what happens. Um, it, what happens in there is a more concentrated version where you actually have a mentor and you are hitting the ground, really studying it. And that's, what, that's the one, the Pure Desire, that's the one that um, Eric will talk about. And for partners, we have um, CCPS therapy, that's the certification. There are three of us in the state of Indiana. I mean. <laughs> Not a lot of help, but there's help, okay. And I can get you, uh, you know, hooked up with a higher level of care if you need it. Um, there's group therapy. I do have a women's group. I do have a men's group. Uh, there are partner retreats now, uh, these days. Not in my practice, but um, 
other uh, places. There's a lot of psychoeducation available. EMDR therapy is, I cannot emphasize that enough. Um, coaching, there's on, online webinars. I have a women's coach, I have a men's coach. Uh, they do online webinars for psychoeducation and there are other people that do online stuff. Uh, a lot of reading materials. So, I will say this, that if you or someone you love fits either any of these descriptions, definitely pray for them, but recommend that they go see somebody. And I mean, I'm like a clearing house, so if I can treat, I do. But if I need, I, it, is, it is not unusual for me to have somebody coming in in a fourth stage and I send them to an intensive first or I send them to an inpatient for a month, bring them back and we hit the ground running and we do that 90 days and then we do that uh, you know, year and I watch people change. You'll hear from one in a little bit. Actually, you'll hear from a couple, two of them today, one on each side of the table. The brain does heal. And that is God's hallmark. He put us together to be able to do this. <clears throat>